Uh, The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute among believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor, sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jess. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words, these important words, and we pray you'd help us uh, to focus now as we uh, reflect on them. Uh, please give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard of a book recently called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Uh, it came out in 2018, and it's a book that examines the way we deal with conflict in the West. And it suggests that there's been a change in recent times. Uh, the authors define the culture in the 19th and 20th centuries as dignity culture. In dignity culture, everyone has an inherent worth, and no no matter what others do or say, this doesn't change. And so when conflict arises, people are less likely to take offence. They're more likely to shrug it off or to go and deal with the person who has offended them. In dignity culture, parents might teach their children some version of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, People are far more tolerant when they have a personal grievance and less likely to make a big deal of it. But the authors argue that dignity culture is being replaced by victimhood culture and it drastically changes the way people deal with any sort of conflict. Because in victimhood culture, we see ourselves as the victim. And the best way to respond when you're a victim is to call out the behaviour of the person who has wronged you. And to do it in a way so that you're portrayed as being morally superior than the perpetrator. And any time you feel like you've been hard done by, you simply air your grievances and you hope that others will come to your rescue. And because people are are more inclined than ever to see themselves as victims, (coughs) there's an increase in conflict and things escalate a lot quicker. Now, as a society, we're increasingly wired to look for conflict. You only have to look at the latest news headlines to see it's true. 
we see conflict and we're drawn to it. And as society is looking for opportunities to respond to conflict, we see the impact in our churches as well. But if Christians encounter conflict and and respond like the culture around us, you can see how it's going to cause big problems within the church. In Corinth, we've already seen the church is divided over leadership, but this morning we see that the church is also experiencing division as a result of the way they respond to conflict. And so Paul in this chapter instructs uh, the Corinthians on how they should deal with conflict when it arises. And Paul gives two solutions for dealing with conflict in the church community. Firstly, resolve it in the church. Secondly, recognize the warnings in your own behavior. Uh, Before we start, it's worth clarifying something. This passage seems to be about civil conflict, not conflict that arises because of criminal activity. Uh, And it's worth saying that up front because the last thing I want people to take away from this is that it's okay to keep things within the church when there is criminal activity involved. Paul is addressing disputes that are civil, not criminal. The Bible does speak about some of those other things elsewhere, and and there are different principles that we'd consider in those cases. But this passage is really about civil matters and the need for resolution. So firstly, when conflict arises, resolve it in the church. Uh, Imagine this situation for a moment. Uh, A Christian sells their car cheaply to another Christian, and everything seems fine, but within a month, the car breaks down. And so the person who bought the car goes through the judicial process and tries to get their money back because the car hasn't done what it should have. And all this happens before they've even spoken to the person who sold them the car. They've spoken to a lawyer, but they haven't even tried to resolve the matter face to face. Or think of a a Christian who asks another Christian to do a job for them over the weekend, uh, some, some building or some plumbing. But at the end, the person decides... They're not happy with the job that's been done, which has been done for for next to nothing. And so they take to social media to vent their frustrations, warning people never to ask friends to do a job for them. And they look for sympathy. They don't name names, but it's pretty obvious to most people in the church who they're referring to. Uh, These are perhaps modern examples of the kind of thing that was happening in Corinth. People taking disputes to those outside of the church. And we see it in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Uh, Reading that verse, it's possible that at the time the judicial system wasn't great and therefore Paul's purely speaking from a, a practical point of view. But Paul's issue seems to be with the fact that Christians in the church aren't doing more when conflict arises. This is the point he makes in, in verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? He seems to be referring to Daniel uh, chapter 7, verse 22, which speaks of a time when God's people will will judge this non-believing world. They will judge people. They will judge angels. And his argument goes... If you're going to judge the whole world, if you'll be given that that great responsibility as Christians, are you not capable of judging among yourselves when it comes to these matters? And when he mentions trivial matters, 
Uh, he's not suggesting that every conflict that comes up in church life is trivial. He's saying these things seem trivial when compared to the day of judgment that is to come. In the scheme of things, they, they are trivial. And so he instructs them in verse 4, If you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Uh, and there are two ways to read this verse. And, and you'll probably have a little footnote if you've got a Bible open with a slightly different translation. Uh, one way is, a quest, is as a question and one is as an instruction. And you can either, re- either read the men of little account as being those within the church, men who aren't very impressive in the church, or more likely you can read it with the focus being on the judges outside of the church. That's who the men of little account are. Men who have no worth in the church, men whose actions see them treated with disdain. That's literally the meaning of of that word used, those treated with disdain, which I think makes it more likely it's referring to those outside the church. Either way you read it, the key issue is this outsourcing of responsibility when it should be settled in the church. And there's every likelihood that the outsourcing is being done for personal gain, to ensure some sort of compensation or to make a statement. Don't mess with me. Now, when we think about the gospel, the message of Christ, what is the impact that it has on on all of us? Well, it brings us peace. brings us peace with God and peace with one another. And that's why Paul is absolutely baffled that the Corinthians are taking matters to court, not resulting in peace, but in increased friction. The church of God has been equipped to deal with conflict and therefore to go before a judge who isn't a believer in these kind of situations is foolish. Chapter 4, Paul said he wasn't writing to shame them. But in this matter, verse 5, I say this to shame you. He's ashamed, he's almost embarrassed to hear about their behavior to the point that he feels they need to be shamed. He continues, is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Uh, This question is one that seems full of irony. Already in the uh, the letter, we've seen that the Corinthians claim to be so wise. Surely they're wise enough to settle disputes. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. And that last part is one of the biggest problems in their actions. These disputes that lead to lawsuits, they're witnessed by a watching world. Non-believers see these interactions between Christians. In John's Gospel, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that people will know them by their love. But that's not the case in Corinth. The world sees Christians taking each other to court in the name of justice and that will leave a lasting memory. Uh, I was chatting to a a couple of people earlier this week and one of the things that came up was how much non-Christians take notice of the actions of Christians and how it shapes their view of Christianity. And I have no doubt you'll have seen this for the better or for the worse in your own lives. (coughs) You wonder what the people in Corinth would have thought when they saw church members turn up to court. I thought those two were close. Don't they go to the same church? And you can, you can feel Paul's frustration in these verses. And what we see certainly challenges us today. 
as we think about how we handle disputes within the church. For some, our, our natural response is to want nothing to do with it. But Paul doesn't let us off that easily. As Christian brothers and sisters, this is our responsibility to each other. Uh, we saw something of that last week as we, as we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, in those verses, we saw people taking responsibility for each other. And it doesn't matter if you're in leadership in a church or not. This is part of your responsibility as a Christian. It, it must not be ignored. And this can be quite hard because as we think of conflict between Christians, uh, sometimes these conflicts exist between people at different churches. It's much easier to ignore when, when it's not right in front of us. And sadly, that's been the approach in some cases. Where any of us attempted to, to wash our hands of a situation, we need to remember these words. Churches have a responsibility to help our people apply the gospel when, we, when they find themselves in the middle of a dispute. To remember how graciously God has dealt with us as we then deal with one another. Uh, we have many other roles and responsibilities as well, but here is one we must fulfill. Now, if we think of things from a more, more personal point of view, if these are disputes that should be resolved within church, then we need to be careful not to go seeking advice from, from non-Christians about these matters. Sometimes we can fall into that trap, can't we, of complaining our, about our situation to others, maybe co-workers, non-Christian friends, on social media, almost as gossip, and often just to affirm our own views, airing the dirty laundry, when we should be chatting to those in the church. Uh, in previous weeks, we've seen the folly of pursuing worldly wisdom over godly wisdom. And when it comes to conflict, it's, it's just as foolish to do that. The other aspect that is worth us thinking about as individuals is how we respond when, when those in leadership in the church make decisions regarding conflict that comes up. Uh, if leaders have been given some role and, and responsibility to help resolve conflict, we need to respect decisions that those in leadership make regarding conflicts that may arise, and, and not just when it suits us. So that's the, the first thing we learn from Paul. Conflict needs to be resolved within the church. Uh, the second thing we learn, when conflict is present, recognize the warnings in your own behavior. Uh, this is verses 7 to 11. And this next part is, is incredibly hard for us to do. Because when any co sort of conflict arises in, in church life or otherwise, our natural inclination is to work out what the other person has done wrong. Focus the attention on them. Uh, I constantly catch myself doing that, and maybe that's something you do too. Verse 7 makes it clear that anyone who has a lawsuit against a Christian brother or sister is likely in need of this warning. The very fact you have lawsuits among you, uh, among you means you have been completely defeated already. Jesus came to bring peace, and yet here you are suing a fellow believer. These are probably people who feel as though they, they've been wronged, and yet, in verse 8, they end up wronging their fellow believers just to prove it. Now you might be looking for a victory in the courts, but you've already lost, says Paul. Because all this shows is the fact that the, the fact that you go this far is that you are in the wrong. It's a wicked thing that you are doing. And actually in verse 8, the problem goes beyond just seeking justice. You yourselves cheat and do wrong or defraud. 
and you do this to your brothers. There's malice in what some of the Corinthians are doing. Uh, There's a commentator called Matthew Henry who writes this, It is utterly a fault to wrong and and defraud any, but it's an aggravation of this fault to defraud our Christian brethren. The ties of mutual love ought to be stronger between them than between others. But that doesn't appear to be the case in Corinth, does it? There is a, a lack of love for fellow Christians. And the potential consequence is there in verse 9. Those who are wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't be deceived. This is the risk for the Corinthians. They may think they're doing the right thing, pursuing justice, getting what they deserve, but in fact they've been deceived. They've gone beyond justice. And they find themselves compared to those who won't enter the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in in verses 9 and 10. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We saw last week that a life characterized by, by these types of things required church discipline. This week Paul goes further and says, a life characterized by these things is actually a sign that a person won't inherit God's kingdom. They won't make it to heaven. Uh, let me give you an example of, of what I think is, is going on here. Uh, when you get in the car and, and you turn the key in the ignition, not, not so far as to start it, but part way, all those different warning lights come on. And some of them are obvious, the, the oil light, the battery light, the check engine light, uh, but there are others that, that aren't as obvious, and I still haven't worked out what, what some of them are. Uh, verses 9 and 10 are a bit like the, the obvious warning lights. Lives that are, are characterized by any of these things are signs that a person won't inherit the kingdom of God. They, they won't be in heaven. But when Paul sees one Christian taking another to court to settle a matter, he sees it as a, as a less obvious warning light. He's making that connection. This is the behavior you expect from someone who will be excluded from God's kingdom. He worries they might be heading back into their old way of life. He's concerned for them. He's worried they're backsliding. And he's asking them to recognize the warning signs in their own behavior. And that is something we all must do if we are to respond rightly when conflict arises. Before we start pointing the finger at others, we must recognize the behavior in our own lives that contributes to conflict. And we must be aware that lives that are characterized by sin against others should worry us. It could be a sign that that we're backsliding because it's not the, the right behavior for a person that will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think he, he doubts that they are Christians, and that's based on, on verse 11 where he says, and that is what some of you were. You used to be like that, characterized by sin, but you were washed. You were made clean from the dirt, the filth that is sin. You were sanctified. Jesus set you apart for his kingdom, making you holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were declared not guilty before God, and in fact, you've been declared righteous. You have a right standing before God. Uh, Verse 11 is is one of the, the great verses in the Bible because it speaks of our new status in Christ. This is who we are. 
Now, as we think about this, this second section and the warnings in our own behaviour that can lead to conflict, we need to be aware of the ways that society is influencing us when it comes to dealing with conflict. Uh, I mentioned the book on victimhood culture. Uh, and if that book's accurate, we're living in a time that encourages us to actively look for conflict in the actions of others. We're quick to point out wrongs that have been done against us, to find faults in others and to view ourselves as, as victims, to demand that we be compensated for perceived wrongdoings against us. So how do we deal with disputes when they arise in this type of environment in a, in a godly way? Well, Paul showed us firstly that we must try and resolve conflict within the church. Secondly, we must be aware of the warning signs in our own lives that contribute to any conflict. But what are we to do in situations where there is no resolution? What if we've tried but it hasn't been resolved? Is it okay at that point to take things to court? Or at least to, to go to the court of public opinion? to make sure that people know we were in the right, they were in the wrong. Well, there's a different option that Paul thinks we should all consider when a resolution isn't possible. And we see it there in verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You'd never hear that advice in, in our society today. But this is the way of Christ and his cross. And that's the way Paul and the other apostles have dealt with conflict. Uh, look back at chapter 4, if you've got a Bible, uh, verse 12. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Paul lives this way because it was the way that Jesus lived and the way he taught his people to live as well. Jesus, who, who taught us to turn the other cheek, who was wrongfully accused, wrongfully arrested, beaten, but remained silent, who was wrongfully sentenced to death, uh, cheated before the courts, yet for the sake of the people of God, he endured it all. That's why Paul can say these words of verse 7. Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged? Forget victimhood culture or even dignity culture. This is the response of a man who knows who he is in Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified by Jesus. And that is enough for him. The love of Christ is enough for him. Paul may be wronged and, and cheated, but in his response he tries to honour God. Uh, I was thinking this week about instances in churches where I've uh, seen people living out the call of verse 7 when things haven't been resolved. And I think there are a number of ways this takes place. A common theme is that God's grace is, is at work in these people. These are people who know the undeserving grace they've been shown in Jesus, people willing to be wronged, cheated, slandered at times, but like the apostle, they haven't retaliated, that they've blessed, they've spoken kindly in response against all expectations often forgetting their rights when the world tells them to do otherwise. All for the sake of Jesus and his church and as a witness to a watching world. What is your response when you face a dispute with a Christian brother or sister? Or when you see a brother or sister dealing with a dispute 
of their own. These things do happen, don't they? It's hard to avoid uh, conflict, disputes in a, in a sinful world. Will you be someone who seeks the moral high ground, who turns to the world or to the court of public opinion, or will you turn to your brothers and sisters, try and resolve the matter in a godly way? Or failing that, are you willing to be wronged because you know that it's a fitting response for a person who knows all that they have in Jesus? His honour is, is more important than our need to be proven right before man. Uh, let's pray that Jesus would be honoured in the church and in the world as well. Uh, Heavenly Father,